I'll probably be, if I'm speaking, I'll be here. Right, we're going. Okay. Now. Do you want to test that? Is, are you happy enough? Ah, yeah, should be grand. Okay. Just a warning to you, Claire, not to do this. Uh, one of us, I'm not sure quite which, is a bit of a culprit for doing this. <laughs> With papers over the machine. I don't know what you mean, John. If possible, to okay, avoid that. Okay, I will. I'll just sit over here in the corner. If that's all right, I'll just wax lyrical here. <laughs> You're very welcome, dear listener, into uh, the latest edition of Folklore Fragments with myself, Johnny Dillon. And myself, Claire Dillon. Hello, hello, Claire. And uh, today is a particularly auspicious day as it is our 13th edition of the podcast, our 13th episode, as it were. Uh, and it's also Friday the 13th when we're recording it. It is. What's the worst that could happen? What could possibly go wrong there? Everything will be perfectly fine. I, th I think so. Uh, but it's also more important uh, because it officially marks our, we are one year old today. We are one year older, Happy one year wiser. To us, one Happy year, birthday yes. to you, buddy. Yeah, it's, um, I must say, it has actually, it has become a particular pleasure to panic every month in trying to get this particular podcast together. It is. It's a bit of a struggle for me to deal with you every month, Johnny, but I, I just... Your outrageous demands here. are unacceptable. Yeah, yeah, but behind all of the, the apparent cheery veneer that we present on this uh, uh, presentation or podcast, whatever, there's actually tears, the throwing of wax cylinders across the, 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 well, um, outrageous demands. Yeah. And Claire now sits in the front office in the mirror, surrounded by light bulbs. <laughs> and so on. Um, I'm um, but the, we struggle I'm on. I'm the one with we the feather boa, Johnny. No, Marching up and down the hall. So we struggle on, despite ourselves. <laughs> No, it's a fine pleasure, and I hope um, our listeners enjoy as well our um, varying rants True. and explorations of all things folkloric. Indeed. I, I have a present for you, which I'll give you, to really? you later, I do. Oh, that's really, really? What, have you not got me one? Yes. Mm. No. Yeah. Really? Yes. Oh, that's very sweet. Shite. I'm going to have to edit that out. <laughs> um, shall we get straight into it then? Yes, let's play on. The, the topic that we have chosen for today's auspicious state is the soul in folk tradition and to look at uh, conceptions of the soul in popular tradition, in the folk mind, as it were, and ideas about this world, the other world, nature of dreams, reality. There's some birds screaming in the background. That's very... Talk about omens. Yes, slightly ominous. I don't know if you can hear that. Um, but yeah, I suppose the, the topic that we're discussing today brings the nature of dreams, of reality, of the dead, the dead who return, the dead who return for um, to kind of fulfill a promise or to bring revenge mm -hmm. or the malevolent dead or the unbaptized dead. There's an enormous kind of amount of, uh, of lore regarding the return of souls to this world and the kind of intermingling and intermeshing of, of this world, so-called, and the other world, this idea of the other world journey and so on and how the two often bleed in together. Um, but... I suppose separate to, we're not specifically focusing on ideas of death per se in the context of this episode. It would be far too broad. We'd actually it be would be insane. We'd months. be here forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we'd just be a pair of skeletons found in, in this room ourselves by the time it was all done. But, uh, but I suppose the idea, for, first and foremost, that the, the soul can kind of depart the body in tradition and it can wander around and it can have... Um, it could be seen in certain shapes or certain forms and then come back to the body as a particular, particularly old one. I'm going to start with a little piece by Sean O'Sullivan in this lovely little book of his, Nelson the Pishogan and Lael, Irish Folk Custom and Belief. Uh, and he describes the idea of the soul in, in folk tradition and he says, The idea of the existence of some kind of soul in human beings is found among even the most primitive peoples. 
The soul was regarded as some kind of concrete entity capable of moving about independently of the body to which it belonged and of assuming different shapes at will. In Ireland, for example, there are traces of the belief that souls of emigrants who had died abroad returned to their native land in the form of seagulls or in sea mist. Perhaps that's why there's a lot of seagulls screaming outside the window at the moment. So it's all our being souls harried of the ancestors the yes, standing indeed. around us. I quite like that idea. Yes. Um, such ideas were of their nature pre-Christian, John says. Dreams and hallucinations among early peoples seem to have given rise to the belief that the soul, or whatever it was, could move about of its own accord. In dreams we appear to see people and to speak to them, and they converse with us. It does not matter that some of them are already dead. So the, the, the idea, I suppose, and it's a particularly old one, and it's important to note as well that the idea of the soul and the existence of the soul, uh, or ideas about reincarnation and this kind of, the, 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 the movements beyond the body and so on, uh, are pre-Christian in nature. Uh, but of course, you know, over a thousand years of Christian tradition in this country has, has really coloured and flavoured many of the, the, the different expressions and ideas and motifs that appear, whatever. Um, but it's a it's an idea of, of pre-Christian origin that features in, in the early literature and so on. Um, but as far as the dream and leaving and, and talking and kind of leaving the body and, and travelling around, there's one particular um, legend that we find all over Europe, but in Irish tradition as well, known as the Guntram legend, the, that's after the, 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 king, the Frankish king Guntram, which is the earliest version of this particular legend where the, the soul departs the body. 787 AD. This is the early... That's the first mention of King Guntram in this... Um, a French book or something, a French what was manuscript. What his name? Um, Paulus Diaconis's ah, yes. Historia Langobardorum, mm, which I have by my bedside. Yes, of course, yes. I have two copies. So that's 787 AD when we first see mention of this legend. And uh, this king, I think, lived... In, oh, yes, he died in the 6th century or yeah, 5th much or something earlier. like that. Yeah, but it's attributed to him in this story. Um, King Guntram. So the basic legend or, or the motifs are set out as follows. Well, look, this is a kind of European versions and so on. Now, it's also important to note, although the first references is from this book that you mentioned, um, Buankus suggests that actually that the narrative is much older than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this is just the first kind of literary capture. Of yes, it. because but it's oral in its bases, this is what which it's, we'll come to. Yeah, yeah which, which is, is interesting. interesting. What's, yes. what's, what motifs are missing and so yes. on. But here is for the, the, the basic plot, uh, dear listener, if you're still with us and haven't, um, you're not overwhelmed with exhaustion like King Guntram himself. It goes like this. King Guntram, overwhelmed with exhaustion after a hunt, what a legend, fell asleep, <laughs> attended by one single companion. A small animal in the shape of a snake was seen coming out of his mouth. The companion followed it and helped it to cross a stream by placing his sword across it. After having disappeared for a while into a crevice in a mountain, the animal returned via the sword over the stream and crept back into the king's mouth. The king immediately woke up and told his companion that he had dreamt that he had crossed a huge river on an iron bridge, entered into a mountain and found a great treasure there. The place where the companion had seen the animal enter was searched and much gold was found there. Out of this a solid ciborium was made, which is still, Paulus Diaconus concludes, to be seen in the city of Catalonum. This is a city in, in France, which I won't try and pronounce because... I won't. No, let's not. We'll pass over it in silence. But that's the basic, the idea that um, in this instance, the king or the narrative then becomes kind of, uh, I suppose, more diffuse and, and relates to many people. But the idea, an individual is out, they, they lie down to take their ease and fall asleep um, out somewhere. And their companion who's with them witnesses this little creature leave the mouth mm-hmm. and go kind of on a little adventure, walking yes. around basically. Um, and so they travel about and then they, they come back in, they come back into the, to the, to the individual's mouth um, and then the person wakes up. 
it's been found in many European countries in literary texts from the Middle Ages onward and in uh, oral tradition. So oral versions, he says, have been taken down in the 19th and 20th centuries in Germany, Holland, England, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Iceland, uh, as well as in countries where Baltic, Slavonic or Fennoogric languages are spoken. Then there are Scottish, Gaelic and Irish versions. And it's also been noted in Persia, in India and in Japan. So it is an enormous spread um, to this narrative and it would seem to be then of particular antiquity. But it appears then, as you were saying, these are, so it begins, as we can have noted there, as a literary um, sample that's published. But as you rightly pointed out, Boo in particular believes it has an oral basis, that it began as an oral story and that we discern that by the number of redactions that exists Mm-hmm. And what we call redaction basically means um, versions, kind of versions <coughs> exactly, which is kind of the I suppose the more layman's term. So that there are so many versions of it, and the certain different motifs that appear across countries and even in counties here in Ireland, and so it gives the basis that it's an oral. Um, what was birth. the what was the different motifs, or what were the bits that were missing, or? So we have so in your sample there was a bridge. The sword. The sword across the river yeah. was the bridge. And yes. he dreamt that he had walked across a bridge. But in Ireland, you see a skull, a horse's skull. That's the really common one. Yeah, we have a recording for, for the, to show that for that. Yes, yeah. so that he, the wild man is dreaming. And the spirit in the form of a snake goes, kind of leaves the body and goes through a horse's skull. Mm. And in his dream, he's imagining that he's going through old runes. Yeah. And that this is what the skull represents. And this is found in Irish um, versions of this tale and there's actually a sample given by Boo I think of Peg Sayers one of her stories of the Guntram legend features the skull um, mm. redaction and her son Michal has it as well but what's interesting is anyone who studied Mauricio Sullivan's mm. book Fibli 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 20 years growing, yeah, yeah, book. in school will have read the Guntram legend but just never perhaps realised it because he features that kind of that same version in his story of falling asleep and having this dream yeah it's funny and in Mauritius in Fihibli in the Foss in 20 years of growing which people should read if they haven't mm. um, it's Mauritius describes his life growing up in the basket in that story Mauritius describes that he fell asleep and had a dream yes. and in this dream he describes the Guntram legend where it's a, a fellow is a, a dream, dream within, within a dream, a dream. Yeah. exactly yeah yeah um, where he says Mauritius himself dreams that he and a friend of his are out in a meadow on a, f- a fine sunny day the friend falls asleep and Murish sees a beautiful white butterfly coming out of his mouth, crawling over an iron gate and disappearing into a horse's skull. Then it returns via the iron gate into the mouth of the friend and he wakes up. He tells Murish that he has dreamt he was walking along railway tracks which crossed each other like threads of a stocking. Then he arrived to a big house and wandered around there from room to room and finally he returned along the railway tracks to the meadow where he was when he woke up. Murish tells his friend what he has seen, that the railway tracks were only an old iron gate that the big house was a horse's skull. And just as he has done so himself, wakes up and realises that he dreamt the whole thing. It was all a dream. And see, Amazing. the gun from legend without naming it as the gun yes. from legend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've all read yeah. it without realising. Yes, indeed. And the butterfly, we should say, is the very common Irish motif. That's the, yeah, you don't find the snake um, no, no, in, in Irish tradition. Which makes sense. It does, yeah. yeah. Um, but I have a, will I play the recording of Mike Filler? Dude, that'd Mike be lovely, Buhin. actually. This is Peg's son. This is Peg Sarah's son, and this was recorded in Dunkin' and Kerry by Boo Anquist, um, the former director of the collection here, uh, Swede. And I've had to edit this piece slightly, so it might seem a little bit kind of jumpy here and there. Um, and it, it basically gives what you described, but it's, it's, in, it's in Irish from Mike Filler. I guess 
So that's Mike Filler's version of, of Gundrum. It's an edited, chopped up bit of, of a kind of a longer piece. He kind of he de- he describes in greater detail climbing over the gate and wandering around the school for most of the day. This fellow in the, in the butterfly as his friend watches on basically. But it's an interesting idea in the sense that it it tells us I suppose the ideas of attitudes to uh, dreams and reality or the connection between the two or the idea that there's some sort of correspondence between what we dream even in a symbolic fashion and how it relates to uh, the waking world and waking life and so on and that the 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 treasure motif is absent in this version of it but it's a common one that you find in other other narratives here as well where an individual will dream of treasure in a certain place will go there and will will find it or whatever and again um, it's those differences so you've if you've heard this story it's well worth just going back in your mind to when you heard it and what version you would have heard because mm. as we kind of pointed out you've got the skull redaction you've got the butterfly you've got the treasure redaction so it'll be interesting depending on where you are in whether in Ireland or abroad and if you've heard this from your elders mm. maybe what version you've heard and then to think well where were your elders from mm-hmm. you know it's quite yeah to see the spread of it yeah but you know what when I was reading about this um no I'm not a, a follower of psychoanalysis or anything like that but um Jung and Freud were mm. big into myths mm-hmm. as tools for studying the kind of subconscious yeah and Jung in particular or Jung in particular was um he kind of looked at the archetypes in mm. myths and fairy tales to see as their kind of representation of the kind of the, the human unconscious and those hopes, fears and dreams. And so he would have, he has a book, 1933, I think he published it, Modern Man in Search of a Soul. Yeah, amazing book. Have you read it? Yeah. Oh, Johnny, why am I not surprised? Yeah. Um, but it's just so fascinating just to see how folklore and myths sometimes totally. turn up in the most surprising Jung places. has another, there's Man and His Symbols, there's another one of his, you can listen to it on YouTube, it's got a four hour audio book if you want to just listen to it and um, he's describing exactly that this idea of the kind of the 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 individual kind of unconscious subconscious or that which is below the threshold kind of Mm. and then at the same time the collective unconscious and these basic ideas of the the hero or um, these kind of archetypal forms and figures and so on Um, so it's it's 
this is where Freud and the Ed, the ego and the superego come in. His no idea. I don't. I don't really follow much of Freud's stuff. But Jung's Jung was a student of Freud's, but they yeah. had a falling out over certain. Um, um, I don't know theoretical kind of disagreements or whatever I don't actually I only have a kind of passing knowledge really of young stuff but the in, it, it's interesting his, his sense of kind of um, of the collective unconscious and how it then manifests in a broader sense and, and in an individual sense in the different layers and the kind of the archetypes symbols the self the shadow and anima and animus and all these kind this of this is a th- woman these. and what, how she's represented man how he's represented yeah and, and I curious. suppose the idea of I guess I mean, it's, it's, it's something that in so many ways a dream can colour sometimes for the rest of the day if you have a particularly unsettling or unpleasant oh, dream. hugely so. Yeah, so we have, or, or like um, was described by Sean in the opening of that book, you know, you might have a dream in which you converse with dead friends or, mm. or whatever, um, but there's a symbolic kind of reality to it. And again, when we think of the purposes of folk tradition, you need to bear in mind that the material that we're looking at here relates, it has a specific and set function. And in this instance, mm. it's referring to symbolic ideas about the other world or about reality and so on which are they're not you don't find in the modern context there's much space i would say in any kind of doctrinal sense for the promotion of these sorts of ideas they'd be looked on as being kind of anachronistic or backward or slightly um kind of twee and warm and fuzzy or something like very that very much so um, but the traditional view is a is a very different one i suppose in which um ideas around the dead and the life force and the soul and so on are um it's the roadmap that they had, really, you know, and we just don't yeah, cool. always have the think. keys to unlock the code that they had. But it was just their roadmap to mm. living life and mm. surviving, really. But the idea that the soul could sometimes be seen as well as outside the body as an animal was a, a common one. Yes, um, and we'll actually come to, we'll that, come to that later on. Because yeah. at the moment, that's kind of the fascinating thing about the Guntram legend is the soul manifesting itself outside the body of a living person without relation to death yeah exactly. which is why you should also shouldn't wake someone up if they're yes. sleeping because this if the soul doesn't get back into the body they lose their mind they lose their mind yeah um which is you know no good um so guntram is a particular i suppose that uh, legend found all over europe and further afield of particular antiquity that shows the basic connections between ideas uh, as they pertain to dreams and reality and the existence of the soul wandering about Yes. Thank you, good night. Beautifully put. <laughs> That's us, um, folks. But the other, I suppose, main area of concern for us really is the idea of the departure of the soul um, from the body as it expires, the, the, the body of, of, uh, of the dead, basically, mm-hmm. or, of, well, yeah, a dead body and how the soul departs with death in particular. There's an enormous, enormous amount of, of lore and custom that needs to be observed. It's and the it, crisis point. Yeah, that's what's been described as the supreme yeah. supreme crisis in in human life, and that we need to treat the the dying as as kind of they're very vulnerable, but they're also uh, dangerous in the, in their way, and that we need to be kind of um, be careful of them in that sense. Um, the initially what I was going to describe maybe is even preparations for the departure of the dead, mm-hmm. um, and as a vigil and so on is being kind of held or kept. There was the idea that you shouldn't. Um, stand in between the the dying person and an open exit so the door or the window or any kind of exit to the house had to be left clear and in some instances ready for departure and as the person was dying the windows would be opened or the door would be opened you had heard yesterday we're saying this though that that would happen at the moment of death yeah in Donegal we have that at the moment of death but then as we kind of always discuss here it, it's just the some kind of interesting patterns across the country mm. so there's no right or wrong Now that you say tradition. that actually I think when my grandmother passed away it was after she died that the window was opened So I'm kind of wondering about drafts and things like that 
just speed you on your way. Well, yeah, if you're on the way out, Open you don't want to be cold about it. Yeah. yeah. Just roll her off there. Yeah. Um, I have a piece here from, from Annie O'Hagan, who was recorded in 1984. Annie is from Cork Hill in County Tyrone in the north of Ireland. Uh, and Seamus O'Cahan, again, our former director here, is describing the rosary being prayed in the house over, over the dying person, but a path is cleared and the door is opened. So it's kind of, get your coat, your time has come, basically. You remind me of something else, Annie, talking there. Did you ever hear that when a person died, that there was, uh, people were sent out, if there was bees about the place, they were sent out to tell the bees that there was a, somebody no. died? No. Or anybody telling the animals about a death? Announcing no. the death like that? No, no word mentioned. But it used to be when anyone was dying, sitting on our bed. When people would be seeing the rosary, the Catholic house, they'd say the rosary. They never kneeled straight at the door. They left a pod. They kneeled and rose along to see the rosary. Somebody was dying in their bed. See, the bed was here, there. and there's the door. Well, there'd be a row of people up this side, and there'd be a row there. But nobody kneeled right in the door, path. Because when the breath was going, the soul was leaving, well, the was they had to get open. The door was open. The path, path left open for them to get out in peace. So that's Annie describing the, the path being left open. And this, is, this isn't this is something that's particular to Ireland. It's a particularly kind of common common idea um, in, in other parts of Europe. Here, yeah, this is in, in Germany. It's described, it says, In many parts of Germany, it was said to be customary after a death to open the doors and windows in order to let the soul fly away. And then it carries on. In some parts of the highlands of Scotland, the door of the room is left slightly ajar. And in some parts of England, at a death, every bolt and lock in the house are unfastened. So there's this, there's this kind of symbolic idea, I suppose, that that which is, is closed needs to be opened and, and the way needs to be, needs to be prepared for the, for the person. Um, there was another reference I read here, I don't know where the hell it's gone, about in, in Norway that something similar was, was done. Um, and that sometimes a hole will be put in the thatch um, of, of a house as well to let the soul escape. The oh, idea that the soul had to depart and also that the soul would depart through the crown of the head. Yes, and, and I've seen birth, the soul numerous enters. references to that in the really? manuscripts here. Yeah, yeah, that just, the soul enters a child through the head, through the head. when they're born mm. and then um, on death departs to departs the crown of the head. head. Which is, has some interesting... Um, yeah. So there's also a strange reference of the, the woman who has a child and then later on uh, when he grows up um, to be a boy or kind of a young man or whatever, um, his soul manifests later as a stone that comes out of her mouth and that she then gives to the to the child. The idea of oh. an external soul in some part, which is another common motif sometimes that a giant or an ogre has an external soul which is hidden in a tree trunk or in an object within an object within an object or in a golden apple or things like this, that their soul is out there and if you destroy that, then you destroy the the, um, the creature themselves, basically. Um, but as we were describing there, as the soul is, is kind of beginning to, to um, get its things and to, to prepare to, to depart the body, um, the idea was that uh, to facilitate it on its way, you should leave the, the doors and things open and also not, not make, um, not show much by way of emotion either. Yeah, which is very, to me, but of course the family are going to be hugely distraught, but I read somewhere, as you said, that you're One not... One hopes. Well, you'd hope so, otherwise it's going to be the inheritance, but um, that... That you were not to mourn too loudly and that the keening was not to begin um, too soon after death because you didn't want to bind the soul of your loved one by saying, oh, we miss you so much that you have to yeah, stay. To distract them, you yeah. might 
distract them or delay them for another day mm. and we'll come to this as to like this moment of death the soul is at such risk um, of being stolen or being delayed mm. from heaven um, so yeah you weren't meant to mourn them too greatly and there was one reference in the manuscripts of a man being asked to step out of the room while his wife passed away mm. to let her go free hmm. because his grief would bind her to to the corpse good grief yeah it's amazing it's that strange mixture of, of um well like you're saying that there's such risk attached to the soul at that time it's mm. such danger it must be very confusing to suddenly find oneself dead um here is Annie O'Hagan again, and she's talking about this old man who has not much time to go, and he, and he asks to, be, to look out the window, to clear, looks down the road and says he has a long road to go, uh, before which he well, departs at it. Uh, uh, this morning, it was about uh, very early, it wasn't, it wasn't just breaking day. And Brian says that Paddy McGill was there in this old man. He was sleeping in a, a wee bed down in the lower room. And he says, take me, get me up. The man says, get me up. And they don't put the bit of him, they pulled on his, his clothes, part of his clothes, and he says, take me up to the wonder, to the kitchen wonder. And he stood at the kitchen wonder, and he looked out of the wonder, it was only a breaking day, but you know how your brain telling that story. And he stood at the wonder, and he says, I have a long journey to go. I stood at the wonder, I heard brain slaving telling that story. The poor wee creature man, he, he looked out of the wonder, he says, I have a long journey to go. And he says, come on, he says, bring me back now. Back to his bed, and he just died over. And the priest wasn't there, and died, but he'd come later, but he was all right, anyway. Wasn't that a funny thing? Aye. Aye, but he looked out. He seen, he seen the path he had to go before he died. Was he a priest He's an ordinary man. He was an ordinary man. It's curious when he says that about getting up um, out of bed, which you wouldn't imagine someone who was obviously very ill. But um, Dr. Patricia Lysett has an article where she describes certain aspects of what people describe um, very ill people doing before passing away. They'll start speaking in their native tongue or mm. they'll start speaking about childhood memories mm -hmm. or they'll actually get up and walk around their place and then get back into bed and die shortly mm, afterwards. It's very profound and strange. But you know what, when she was mentioning clothes there, I just wanted to mention um, for this podcast about this idea of Grimandoni, mm. which is, again, tying in, and no pun intended, mm. um, with the idea, of, the idea of unbinding the soul, kind of leaving doors and windows open. There's an idea in the materials that I read about Grimandoni that you should kind of loosen any knots or ties in the clothes of the sick person so as not mm -hmm. to bind the soul in any way. And anything, I've never heard that. Yeah, no, yeah, I only actually heard it last year when I read about it in Donegal, which I'd never heard about in kind of my childhood, but um, Dr. Lysett writes about, where the death struggle was particularly stressful and prolonged, care mm. should be taken that the clothes or bedclothes of the dying person did not contain the Sunday stitch or grimandoni, that is, a stitch sewn on a Sunday and mm. not loosed or removed. Any such stitch or stitches should be undone immediately in order to allow the person to die. Um, and again, it's that belief, I imagine, and the symbolism of you shouldn't break the Sabbath so that anything kind of sewn or worked on on the Sabbath has a particular power, a, a power and yeah. an ill omen. Mm. So again, you're to loosen open doors, open windows at the moment of death, unloosen um, these knots or these ties Unfasten, yeah. and let the soul go. It's incredible, the reference to symbolic action, which on a purely kind of rational or reasonable level, which I'm not inclined to think on at the best of times anyway, you could say it was like this totally functionless and ridiculous, you know what I mean? Um, because, you know, in 
I suppose in the context where there's no transcendence or there's no soul or no belief in, 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 in these things at all, then what does a death mean in any way? It doesn't mean anything, essentially, if you're to, if you're to kind of um, negate all of those kind of transcendent properties or principles or whatever. But there's, there's tradition shows the total opposite. There are so many symbolic actions that need to be taken, or, or never mind the, the untying of knots, which is, again, there's no functional kind of... Uh, purely f strictly materially functional kind of component to that but also then specifically the untying of knots or stitches sewn on a certain day that they that everything garners a certain power or symbolic power is related to everything else is a kind of enormous landscape of meaning to, to traverse with it these sorts of must bring comfort though i think i always of course think, of course you know, that this is what at the root surely it must you feel in a situation where you can you are absolutely powerless to stop the worst from happening to your loved one that you are at least able to do these things. Everything, everything must be done, and it's where the individual finds expression in the communal mm -hmm. by virtue of this is what we have done, this is what we do, and it's the symbolic idea where you have, you know, with the experience of death, you come up against the unfathomable, basically, mm -hmm. and the 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 infinite and the absolute, really, and your own um, kind of paralysis in many ways, depending on the situation, is is manifest in yeah. that sense, and and is and appears to you so kind of symbolic actions take on uh or well, they are of enormous import they've enormous import anyway but particularly these times of crisis they, they take on this um a, a huge significance which is it's not to be kind of looked down upon or decried as some not sort of um kind of ignorant foolishness of a of a you know a backwards mind whatever it's, i don't think it's essentially human just trying to yeah it's 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 a bit trauma. It, exactly yeah yeah but it's it, it relates to i suppose ideas of of transcendence and, and the other world at a very at a very fundamental level um, and can i finish off on, on an in other interesting point because mm. there's just so much wealth here and mm. um, i was reading about Bueska and Sigurd, so to die without a priest because obviously if you can get the last rites prior to death um, it, it safeguards the soul and sends you on the way so the worst curse you could perhaps give someone is you know i hope you die without a priest because you leave your soul at risk mm -hmm. and i read that should the priest come to the house and the person has died if the, if the priest asks you has he died or has she died you're to say i don't know because if you say yes then it's too late and mm. the priest can't give the last rites extreme I, I think the extreme yeah. unction whereas if you say i don't know technically the soul is believed to remain with the corpse for a certain amount of time after death so technically legally legally, um, legally very legalistic approach if to, you to say, the world i don't know father he can give the last rites and thereby saving the soul because mm. again it's that moment when the devil is almost at your side waiting to steal the soul if possible mm -hmm. so if anyone asks you don't know you saw nothing you heard nothing it wasn't even there it wasn't even there bill egan who we've had on the podcast before from um clanton lock in county Offaly in the midlands of ireland jim delaney did a lot of recording from him and he described that at the moment of death the window had to be opened from the top and the bottom and the top the angel would come in at the top and the devil would go out ah. through, through the bottom or whatever um, but yeah, the, the idea is that, that as well, that, that the priest was often delayed mm -hmm. on a sick call is a common one. Yeats has that poem. Did you, what was that poem? Or was that, I remember hearing about, about the priest who falls asleep on his way to a sick call uh, and wakes up terribly distraught, realising that he's, he's missed the hour and this oh. person is really dead. But when he goes there the next day, um, the family are grateful for him for having come in the night. So some double or something has gone on his way. But the idea in folk tradition, which, which one finds quite quite a lot is the idea that uh, the priest is traveling off on, the, on, on his way to uh, give the last rites at a sickle when he hears this beautiful voice singing mm. and he stops and lights from his horse and he stops to hear this this beautiful woman's voice singing in a field and he climbs into the field and he's listening 
and the voice gets quieter so he follows along through the grass and until it gets louder again and it gets quieter and he keeps following further and further away from the path until he comes round a hedge or a corner or a ditch or whatever and sees this enormous black dog singing this beautiful song and realises shit it's it's the, it's the devil trying to trying to uh, kind of um, delay him, just delay him on, on his way so he needs to kind of run back on, onto the horse and, and eventually he, he finds it he winds up kind of making it just in time the idea was that the devil sometimes would have these black dogs along the road that would try and capture a soul and take a soul with them the Mashtini the Mashtini yeah, yeah I, I hadn't he, heard of those but I, except to looking at the manuscripts here I'd never, I'd never yeah, heard of so those yeah so it before. seems to be these what do you call them his his followers or these um servants of the exactly. evil one as it were yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind of, who would haunt the roads yes waiting for those moments when the soul is at the point of departure and they'll kind of swoop in mm. and try and steal it and so you see examples in the manuscripts of Saint Michael, who was mm. the the figure in Catholic teaching, who was at the side of the soul at the moment of death mm-hmm. to bring them to heaven. So you see um, samples of Saint Michael fighting with these. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. You, ha- you there, are, there are images of a- where a man will see uh, angels fighting with demons in the road over a soul. Exactly. Uh, but this incredible. is the moment, like, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. when it's most at risk. So you're to do everything to safeguard oh, the soul and send them on the way. I, I have a piece here. Um, this is recorded in nineteen seventy nine under the, the the urban folklore project, um, which Seamus O'Cahan, who we heard there chatting with Annie uh, Annie O'Hagan in Tyrone, he actually established this as the director of the folklore collection here, and this is to redress the imbalance of the commission in its earlier day, where it focused on on rural areas, and the aim of the, the collection here was to look at the cities, but this is an account of a man who doesn't believe in God, so we're told, and he's quite a kind of rough fellow, and he says that he'll, he'll come back from hell as a black dog to haunt the roads, basically. He sounds like a good crack, this chap. Are there any uh, headless coaches around here, or uh, black dogs, or things like that? Well, there used to be an old dog where he would chains going around here at night. There's an old man over here doing it. Um, old Johnny Cox, remember old Homer? Uh, and he, he, like he, was a, he was a rough fellow, lad, like he drank, and... Ah, yeah. He said he'd come back, and he, he, he said he'd come back, and there'd be... A dog would 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 four in his eyes. So the people taught that. See, like, and they got they got a bit afraid when he died that he thought he would be back. Because he he had he had the devil's Oh yes, look, he he was wicked. Look, he wasn't very religious. He didn't believe in God. Ran. He said he'd be back some night even I go. And one night a woman down the lane was an old goat. Well, the old old goat with a chain oh, over. With a goat, with a, and the next thing the old goat come up. They said, the BGA, the, 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 this is Johnny Cox. The chain hopping off the goat. had to get enough fruit. So that was um, one of the tyrannies there in Knockmitten near Clondalkin, chatting to Seamus McPhillip um, and talking about, again, this, this Johnny Cox returning as a black dog and the goat walking in the lane and terrifying him. Um, but... I suppose to move on maybe from the idea of the soul and the dangers of the soul as it gets on its way. As at the moment of departure. Yeah. So once the soul has um, departed and the per- person has passed away, we have the very common idea in Irish folk tradition of the souls returning um, throughout the year, but we'll kind of come to the more, um, I suppose, popular days that they're associated with but they come back for a number of reasons as we see across the stories that we have in the manuscripts they come back to help us they come back to protect us and they can do return to do penance to seek absolution to honor a promise to pay a debt or um, 
more malevolently to seek revenge or to entice us into the other world, nice. which we'll come to. I know. There you go. Just be mindful. This mm -hmm. is why you don't walk out late at night. <laughs> so um, the idea of the souls returning. So All Souls Night, and um, we couldn't go without mentioning it. And um, mm -hmm. 1st of November, when it's most associated with that liminal period where the dead can come back. And the idea is, in many of the stories, you see people preparing the house and mm. tidying the house that night, sweeping the floors and perhaps leaving chairs around the, the hearth and perhaps leaving food out for them when family members are thought to come back. Mm. And there are also, I've seen references as well, where, yeah, the Sharechik only gavillin anim chain so this is just um, an Irish reference from Galway, I believe, about the soul returning on the first night after the funeral. Hmm. So they, they are known in folk tradition to return at certain times, on certain days, um, at certain periods. And All Souls Night is the one that most people um, That's will most, be familiar most with. Common, yeah. And it, it should, we should say as well, as we always point out, it's between midnight and yes, the cock crow. And, cock crow, yeah, and the cock crow, um, the cock being a particularly... Um, supernatural bird yes hugely resonant in tradition um so it's between the hours of midnight and 12 and so in many of the stories you'll see that particular time being re referenced the cockroach marks the end of the period of night and the yes. supernatural and then the coming of the forces of day kind of thing exactly. so that spirits have to retreat and that that is a mo is an enormously um a common motif all right that 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 kind of the boundary points and the liminal period and then these boundary points. If you survive until Cockrow, you are safe. You're doing well. Um, I have a piece here, Mrs. Christina McGrath from Buckingham Street in Dublin's inner city. She was 87 um, when this was recorded by Anne O'Reilly in 1980. And she's describing her grandmother uh, leaving out bread, water and salt for the dead in a house on All Souls Night mm. in Dublin's inner city. Poor souls. <laughs> Poor souls and all the saints. My mother put a glass to me mine and said, what do we Vanny put down the table for? A glass of water for the stabs and a slice of bread. He lay down the table all night and the soldier of the poverty comes around and you wouldn't see the mark of the water, the salt and the water christened you and they come back to that table to that water. Oh, I see. Years, ah, oh, that was years ago. They put the salt... I looked at the present time, I used to do it. Regular. Oh, no, so, I mean, that's say. foolish. Yeah. It's not because you only follow, follow the words of the Bible. Mm. But my mother don't, and my mother understands the country people do mm. so She goes, I must do that in the south. Mm. And what did you See, how would you know to drink water? So, uh, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know that they leave no sign. Mm. Leave no sign. Mm. And you leave the bread and this water. Yeah, the mud with the hands on the bread, you see, you wouldn't yeah. see it. Salt and the water. Mm. And you leave that out on all souls. Oh, yes, and a candle lighting. And a candle lighting. And after 12, you put out the candle. Yeah. See, so you put out the candle, come around about 12. Yeah. And you just have the heads covered. <laughs> so she wouldn't see the souls. That comes in a, a vision. Mm. Couldn't see them. It's, it's the, con the idea in the folk mind of the continuity between life and death that always strikes me that death is not the end. Mm. I, I love that, that it's that, to me, that's comforting. But um, one of the things that I was going to point out as well about preparing the house and leaving out food and whatnot, I read an article by a guy called um, Girodon who was speaking mm -hmm. about the Britannic. Breton stuff. Yeah, and it was fascinating. Now, again, um, the idea of dust and ashes. Mm. Now, I would need to study this far more. I know that we have certain, you could argue, 
elements that are kind of run parallel in Ireland, but I would need to dig deeper to, to confirm or kind of give any definitive answers on this. But he speaks about the idea of in Brittany souls as dust and ashes. So on certain nights like this, that you're not to sweep out the dust and ashes from the house because mm. they're the souls of the family. Mm-hmm. And, and he's one thing, sweeping after midday um, on this day is sweeping God away or the souls um, of the family. And he says that in the 17th century, women were known to carefully gather the dust off certain chapels and throw them into the air to con- encourage favourable winds to bring their husbands home from the sea. And apparently, and I would need to check this with my friends from Brittany, that in certain chapels before graveyards um, were built around them, the corpses were buried in the church. And so there was this strange association between the dust um, mm. from the church and the souls. Now, again, that might be very far-fetched, but it's just, to me, strange how these ideas um, emerge yeah, and it's amazing. meld into folk tradition. And the idea as well, in, in Irish folk tradition, that you shouldn't sweep the dust out of the front door of the house. You should sweep it in towards the fire. Yeah. But to uh, yeah. me, that's always, because we always sweep it in towards the fire in order to put it into the fire. But I find it just as a practical thing. I don't want dust out of my front door. I know what you mean. I think <laughs> in a lot of instances, you can look to a quite a practical, um, for some instances answer. at least, mm. a practical answer or whatever. Um, perhaps it's just my own bias, but I tend to think that the practical answer is often incidental or that the symbolic thing grows out of it and mm. takes on greater importance, even though, yes, it might serve a practical purpose, but the symbolic aspect then is kind of i don't know the the vehicle behind it you know what i mean the could be dark matter yeah. as it were yeah the romantic and the rationalist johnny exactly <laughs> that us. yeah and um, now here is another piece this is richard bean and this is collected in in 1980 in oliver bond street flats in the in the area of the liberties in, in dublin's inner city south inner city um, and he's describing his his late wife who used to leave out water bread and a cigarette for the dead which is nice helpful mm-hmm How's the hell there's no redemption? How's the hell you won't come? And those are purgatories you're released once a year. Now, my missus, before she dies, was a very peculiar woman, you know. Every old troubles most. She used to get the table and she put it there. She'd sweep up the floor, she'd take up the ashes, she put a glass of water, a cut of bread and butter, and a cigarette on the table. But there was nobody there the next morning when you get up. <laughs> I don't have seen any souls coming in Jesus. See, she only done that year after year. Did she? All year after year, all for about 20 years. And she was a Dublin woman, was she? Huh? She was a Dublin woman, your wife. Yes, she's about Dublin. And she had that out there of that. Souls, the bread, the butter, and the cigarette. Hmm. The cigarette slays me. Mm-hmm. Excellent. <laughs> That's Eilish Nuhina, the president of the Folklore of Ireland Society now, and the, the well-known writer asking those questions, interviewing him. As the collector, back, yes. As the collector back in the Urban Folklore Project. Um, the idea of tobacco, and the idea uh, is, is an old one as well, of, I suppose, of making offerings to your ancestors and to your forebears, and not just offering up prayers but also leaving symbolic items and offerings even in flowers or uh, in tobacco or alcohol or things like this but the idea sometimes even if a piece of tobacco fell on the ground Mm -hmm. that you should leave it for the dead and that you shouldn't take it you shouldn't take that and put it in your pipe or roll a cigarette with it you should you should leave or a piece of food fell on the ground that it should be it's for them it's it's offered up and but that brings in another aspect i suppose of of 
the returned dead and sometimes the idea of the dead who are serving penance on earth yes. and the other world conception in, in Irish tradition and in broader European tradition whereby you can sit on the bus beside someone essentially who's dead you don't know or you see an animal you know a bird or some sort of animal nearby you and you won't realize that they're actually someone else in a human or a, a soul it's in, yeah in, exactly and there's an instance <clears throat> there's a legend the the spirit and tobacco the tobacco spirit legend whereby an individual um, is dying for a smoke basically and he's offered he sees somebody so in one instance in Kerry there's an old woman who's always smoking a pipe under a bridge and everyone always sees her there assumes she's kind of this vagrant homeless woman um, and in one instance this man is coming home late at night and he asks her for a smoke and she gives him the pipe and he takes some drags off it and then he gives it back to her um, saying a prayer for all the dead and kind of thanking her basically and giving praise to the dead and she offers it to him again and he does the same thing and, and says this kind of this this prayer for the dead and they do that three times where afterwards it's revealed that she's there doing penance there's no one to pray for her and his blessing on her now has released her from her need to to, to maintain to stay here basically so there's an idea i suppose that that the dead are treated with a mixture of kind of reverence and fear and respect and and pity in ways as well, depending on, on the context of their death or the reasons for which they might return. There's another nice one I remember reading. I can't, it's one of those pieces, I can't remember where exactly, but there's a little soul um, doing penance on a rock in the sea. Oh, I love the story somewhere. when you told me. And, and it's, it's sitting there and it's, it has to be there for 900 years or something like that. And it sneezes. And then something beside it says, bless you. And it's like, what? Who the hell is that? And it doesn't realise that for the last 900 years, there's another soul that's been sitting there on that little rock. And they didn't realise... And the, they both bless each other, or say thank, and then just go wing, wing, and disappear off to heaven because they've just Bless they've both other. blessed each other in this little moment. So the two of them are floating there invisibly on this little rock doing their penance. Um, but and it, it's souls that aren't accepted into heaven, um, by way of kind of the often it's those who have perhaps killed themselves or and those killed who are someone un, else or maybe someone or were unbaptized or or um, in some form. They've stepped outside the, the social norms and the kind of the religious norms, mm. and so now they're sent the bound, back. The spiritual sense. bounds of the community, and the other idea as well is that perhaps just the idea of which is touching, I think, the idea of, of souls of our forebears or ancestors for whom there is no one to pray, yeah. those forgotten souls that where no one will pray for them, and so on account of that, um, they they kind of well they're languishing to some greater extent, or that they need the assistance of the living to to facilitate them in the other world. This is Agnes Quinlan, a recording here from 1973 by. And our former sound archivist Leo Corduff, um, and he's describing, or he's he's interviewing this this woman Agnes, and she's describing her her own inclinations and, and how she regularly prays for the dead, or specifically those who have known to pray for them. You gain the indulgence, like what do you do? I always pray like for those who has no one to pray for them. Yes, I go in and go out and I give them a special little prayer, you know, for them, and there's no one to pray. There's an awful lot of people with no one to pray. And saying our Father and a Hail Mary and a Glory be to the Father. For, like, we'll say now for me father or me mother, or don't you know on that? Yeah. And I used to do that about, well, like, four sisters. I have two sisters dead and three brothers dead. Well, like, I would do that now, uh, like, for them, and then I would do special for those who have no one to pray for them. That. Ah. And offer up the prayers for those, you see. That's what I So that's Agnes Quinlan, but the, the idea that, that the dead need our prayers, need our thoughts, need to be remembered and specifically and also need, need to have offerings made to them um, for your own, your family or, or kind of extended ancestry beyond that um, and also the idea of 
assisting those dead for whom no one here will pray or that no one can remember, you know, that, that it has this kind of, I suppose, uh, great impact on another level, as it were. This is the, the common idea. Very much so. True. Um, but yeah, this, this idea of kind of the returned dead who, who are in need of assistance from the living is, is not uncommon. Mm. And shall I introduce this little part? You must. It's okay. too beautiful. So this is um, quite special because this is actually my grandmother's recording who um, sadly passed away last month. So I thought this would be quite just a, a fitting tribute to the warrior that she was mm. and how, um, I suppose, how much she influenced me as a folklorist and as a, a lover of tradition and our heritage and how much she kind of imparted to me. And so I kind of, in fitting tribute, that I promised that I would kind of continue on with the, kind of the love of tradition, we are going to play a kind of a little piece that she recorded years ago, actually, as part of a, a wonderful project called Bellagesbio.ie, which you should all actually look up. It's a, a website dedicated to mm. Donegal um, folklore and tradition, and it used Sean O'Sullivan's handbook of Irish folklore, the second holy book, which to me at the time, going through my rebellious phase and not really minding <laughs> much about these things, I was like, oh yeah, grand, grand handbooks, folklore, grand. Um, but she would have gone through the different headings with the collector and spoken about various aspects of folk tradition. So here she is talking about the very kind of common story she would have told us as a child about um, her mother and grandmother coming back from work one night from the local factory and they encounter a woman who comes right up to my grandmother's grandmother and almost just looks her right square in the eye and says nothing. And my grandmother obviously recognises who she is, but doesn't tell her daughter, being my grandmother's mother. This is getting very convoluted. But she doesn't tell her who she is. But very kind of, kind of soon after that, the mission comes to town, which is kind of a, was a big kind of religious affair in town. And she asked that a mass be said for the soul of this woman, who is clearly a restless soul and the woman is never seen again. So to me, she would have told me this story countless times and I just would have accepted it as some kind of ghost story. But now looking at what we've learned, all the motifs are there, mm. the kind of this liminal space by the local kind of bell that is kind of considered a lonely spot. You've got the late hour, you've got the restless soul, and then you've got the prayer for a said soul and then them going to peace. So in tribute to my wonderful grandmother, um, mm. we'll play this. So the I was small, I arrested I mission mission more missionary, but the 
That's what you should always say, just to um, may God bless all the souls of yes, the dead. Agreed, agreed. That's pretty lovely. That's all. Mm. Um, Mascara everywhere, Johnny. Know, we yeah, we, we better flow on. Like we should, yeah. <laughs> um, we were talking about purgatory or those who leave purgatory and who need the care of the living to move along or whatever. Um, but there's, there, are, there are several, not just stories, but songs that describe the idea of an individual who kind of disturbs a soul in the middle of purgatory, in, mm-hmm. in, in purgatory. Mm-hmm. For example, there was in Miraculous Plenty, which is the, the book that Sean O'Sullivan compiled, where um, he describes the robber man who's always chopping down trees for some reason. Yes. But he's chopping down trees, rogue, and um, he's about to saw through this, this particular tree and it's about to collapse and I'm sure he's delighted with himself and his wicked ways and so on. When he hears from the tree a voice uh, imploring him to stop what he's bloody doing um, and declaring that he's the soul of a child who's been doing his penance mm. in, in that tree for... 21 years? I think he has to spend 20 years before he could go into the kingdom of God. And he only has about an hour An hour left. Go. And he said, where is it now? Do I have it? I don't have it in front of me. But he, he said, he described, oh, here it is. That um, it says, I was condemned to spend my purgatory in this tree that you were cutting down. I had to spend seven years between the bark and the wood on the cold windward side of the tree. Seven years more between the bark and the wood of the tree and the sunny side of the tree. And the last seven years here in the heart of the tree. I've done the whole term except for one hour. When the cock crows, my soul will go from this place and go into the presence of God and the just. Have patience for a while now and let me finish my purgatory. So this man, duly reprimanded, didn't cut down the tree. Perfect. Yeah. And But what gets me is many of these stories are very didactic in that they have a very strong moral because the um, woodcutter then says, my God, this poor child who actually did so little really and was given this penance. Can you imagine how, yeah. what is going to happen to me? He changes his wicked ways. Exactly. And the child says, no, it's never too late. And so the robber um, lives a life of probity piety. and piety. Probity. He says, the man, arose, the man arose and put on his coat and took his axe off home. And from that day to the day he died, he did no more thieving or stealing, but completely changed his ways. He gave back as far as he was able, everything he ever stole, which seemed to be nothing but enormous amounts of trees, if, if this standard is anything to go by. And he lived in the love of God and in peace with his neighbours from that day on. Until he died and went to hell. And that, that last bit wasn't in there. Um, the, the, uh, the common, you find there's another medieval apocryphal religious legend where a monk is doing penance in a river with a staff and he's standing in the river with the staff waiting for it to blossom. Mm-hmm. And a robber who comes on his way crosses the river and sees this monk doing this penance and realises, good grief, look at this ascetic monk, what have I done with my life? Mm-hmm. And he decides he's going to take a stick and stand in the river to try and kind of atone for his life or whatever. And then realises uh, the monk actually then is kind of jealous because the robber's staff blossoms first and then they go on their way or whatever. But... Um, but the idea that's described in, in the, the, uh, the, the child in the tree and so on and so forth, that having to spend a certain amount of time in a certain set or, or kind of purgatorial stages is quite common in certain songs. Um, and I'm going to play a piece here. This was recorded from Mickey Connors by Tom Munley, who's our great um, collector of, of song and so on. 
down by the green road side him. And this describes the idea, it's a version of the, the, the child murderess, um, or Wheelie Wheelie or Petticoat Loose and so on. This common figure of the woman who murders her own children and then sees them as ghosts and then feels remorse and regret and so on and so forth. And they tell her, um, kind of, you're going to spend seven years as a rock, you're going to spend seven years as a hedge, and then you'll spend seven years as a cat, and then you'll go to heaven or whatever. So you, you see this kind of purgatorial aspect in this song. I love this song. In this instance, though, it's the father who's killed them and he sees them playing. I so. Once I was gone down by my daddy's yarn, all alone and alone and lonely. I seen three bins and a plane of ball down by the green roll side. There was one of them was dressed in blue. All alone and alone alone he. And the other of them was naked was born. And a stone by the green roll side. Oh, daddy dear, when I was yours, all alone and alone, alone, you addressed me up beneath a coarseness fine. And a stone by the green roll side. Oh, babe, oh, babe, you know right well. All alone and alone, alone. For what shall I go to heaven or hell? And it's down by the green road side. You'll be seven years a stone in a brudge. All alone and alone, alone. You'll be seven more having your own calves and a stone by the green roll side. You'll be seven more just yuck in a jab. All alone and alone, alone. You'll be seven more curled head and a stone by the green roll side. You'll be seven more happy than in white. All alone and alone, alone. And up to heaven you will take your flies. And us down by the green roadside. That's all I know. Lovely. That's, well, not quite lovely. Murderous. Murderous um, is probably he, less. The, the children are there as ghosts and they're saying... You didn't dress us. You dressed us in neither coarse nor fine when we were alive, and now we're dead. And um, and the the murdering father asked, "Will I go to heaven or hell?" Interestingly, they don't say, "Yeah, you'll go to hell." They, but they describe the stages of, of purgatory that that you'll have to go through, basically. And um, that's was that's down by the green road side. Then yes. you've got the song, as you said, "Willy Willy Walla," which, ironically, a woman rang the other day, um, asking about that, which is the most one of your many um, strange queries. I love my queries, but isn't that such a strange thing that just as the week that we're going to speak mm-hmm. that of all the questions she could ask? Mm-hmm. Um, Petticoat Luce was, was was this kind of the, the child murderess, the unrepentant child murderess who would walk the roads having died mm-hmm. uh, and, and was damned or whatever. And there's the story of the man who meets her coming home. 
You have to think as well, even in many of the contexts where, again, people, men setting out to travel to market at two in the morning and having to travel all through the night and then meeting kind of spirits and so on on the road and having these, these adventures or whatever. And, and the description in tradition, this particular individual, in one instance, he's traveling home and uh, Petticoat Lewis suddenly kind of manifests in the road and he realizes that he's doomed, that she's going to kind of doom him in. And she's choking him and he takes out a black handled knife and the black handled knife is another kind of common motif to protect against against other world influence and supernatural influence and the same way that iron is as well commonly um but takes out the black handled knife stabs her in the, in the back and she says to him take it out and stab me again and he's like no way because he realizes if he takes out the knife he won't be able to have her captured she's under a certain amount of power with the knife st- stuck in her so he walks her to the pub with this knife as stuck in her as you do and they get a priest and the priest says to her... Um, Why well, actually have a version? Will I read it out? Yeah, text. please do, yeah. What damned you or whatever. What damned you. So the first question that the priest asked her was, what damned you? She said that she used to be putting water in the milk and Nonsense. selling it. That didn't damn you, you rogue. What damned you? The priest asked. I used to be hitting my father and mother and letting the, and not letting the servants go to mass. That didn't damn you either, said the priest. What damned you? I killed an unbaptized child, she said. Ah, that's what damned you. Mm. He read over her then and he put her out to the Red Sea making ropes of sand to the judgment day. Mm. And that was um, quoted by Anne O'Connor in her article on the returned dead revenant. Mm. Amazing. The, the ropes of sand is another kind of common motif. But um, we're, we're, gonna, we're probably going to stretch over the air, but I don't really care because it's too interesting, practical stuff that, that's, that's here. But the no other, one's probably listening, Johnny. Probably, no, we've they're just, just they've, yeah, we've lost probably, them. They're all gone. Hello. <laughs> um, the unbaptized dead mm. are, are, is another angle or area where there's an enormous amount of of interesting material in in the Norwegian or Nordic tradition, certain with with, with legends from from, from um, uh, Nordic countries, the unbaptized dead were often treated with a certain degree of trepidation, mm-hmm. and there were there was a kind of they were um, frightening. They were thought to be kind of these frightening figures. There was the rhyme about um, putting the scissors over the body of the the dead child to keep it from getting up, and it makes it says a little rhyme. Um, Something along the lines of, if I didn't have this scissors covering me, I'd get up and dance with my mother. Or one dead child is put in a pot and it says that the legs are long, but the pot is small. You know, it's, it, they're, they're treated with kind of fear and trepidation, basically. But in Irish tradition, they seem largely to have been treated with, with um, some degree of love and, and compassion and pity. They're more benign. Mm. They're just wandering lost, wondering what, what's happened. That's right. And they couldn't be buried in, in holy ground, consecrated ground, as it were, because they were outside the spiritual and um, kind of metaphysical bounds of the community. They hadn't been accepted into it. So commonly, all over Ireland, anywhere with the, the, the place name Killeen often refers to um, a, a spot where the unbaptized dead were buried. I remember interviewing a farmer up in, in West Wicklow in, in Lacken, a sheep farmer, and he had on his land a, a, a patch that his great-grandfather had designated for the, for the locality um, to be set aside as a place where the individuals could bury the unbaptized dead and it was then consecrated many years later so a kind of co- not uncommon practice but sometimes they were buried at a crossroads or in a hedge or a ditch or a wall or a high watermark or um sometimes they were buried at the west facing uh, wall of a churchyard or graveyard so they were kind of near the church but they couldn't be buried in it um it's such a bittersweet history that we have in this country isn't mm. it you know we see time and again yes but the, the idea of having to name the child as well, naming legends, were... were um, Interestingly, not were in Ireland, though, because we were chatting about yeah. this. So you see stories about, particularly in the Scandinavian model, that the child um, is asked by a person who sees the spirit, you know, what troubles you? 
um, and they said, oh, I, I haven't been named. And then they would call them either... Joey or Julia or Exactly, a name that was common in that tradition as you would like maybe Patrick or Mary here in Ireland. And then they say, oh, I have a name and they big mm. up to heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, or they might be given a, a humorous name like Puddlefoot was yes. one example from Scotland. Whereas in Ireland, the, from what Anne O'Connor says in her research, the naming tradition isn't, um, it didn't permeate through mm. um, to the same degree that you would see in the, the mm. Scandinavian model. Sometimes the, the idea that, some, that they're accidentally named like Puddlefoot or something, or there's one... Um, I remember reading an instance where a little light is following a fellow along. I think it was in Scotland as well, and um, he realizes he's not sure what it is, or it's a, it's a little ghost of a kind of little child walking along, and he insults him and says something, "Get out of here, bear arse or something. And having named him, the child then can go to heaven and is duly named bear arse. Ah, is, is, bear arse of Flanagan. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, lovely. Well, the Ballyhonest bear arses. Um, <laughs> but the idea, I suppose, that the unbaptized dead would kind of I suppose, um, are, are in an indeterminate and liminal state and as such can influence human affairs by virtue of their still hanging around here. Mm-hmm. If you were to stand on the spot where an unbaptized child had been buried in a field, you'd be sent astray, you wouldn't be able to find your way to the field, you'd have this kind of bizarre otherworldly experience. Um, but the other, I suppose, the other type of, of kind of um, narrative concerning the return of souls or common features, what was called in, in the English ballad tradition is the Suffolk miracle mm-hmm. or the Holland handkerchief or The Heart's Delight, or uh, My Willio was another name of the song, where the, the dead lover returns to, to... A rendezvous has been set between a boy and a girl, and they, they establish that they're going to meet at a certain time, and the lover comes along on his horse, and she jumps off to ride off into the night with him, but she realises along the way that he's dead, and she then becomes very frightened, and sometimes he tries to drag her into the grave, and other times... Uh, well, she just simply escapes or they just realise much to her sorrow that he's dead. Both sides, so it can be quite a dark story in that he's trying to actually attack her or kind of draw her into the other world. Whereas in other versions, um, it, it's more gentle and that he's there to kind of release her. I saw a sample from Donegal where he's there to say, you were true to me for those years. Um, mm. I now free you to, to marry someone else. Mm-hmm. But, but then she dies. Yes, and that's one of the common things mm. in all of them that the... This, um, the partner, whether it's a man or a woman, usually a woman, doesn't ever thrive after no, this, this encounter within... Um, you see it? So yes, yes, she does. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yes. So um, she never, within maybe a year or within a few years, you know, she, there, she never has any luck and she dies soon after. Mm. There's a idea, I suppose, that the, 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 the kind of the bonds of love that transcend death, essentially. And often you have, um, even in the case of... Um, you know, kind of Tristan and Isolde kind of thing, uh, where the two lovers who die, they're reincarnated as plants that grow from the grave, the thorn and the rose bush that inter- intertwine then after after death. Um, but the idea that I suppose these these bonds transcend, they cross over between the two worlds, and, and they have to be kind of evened out. So eventually, the the two depart and, and kind of are, are are dead. There's um. There's a nice version of that song that we have collected here that Tom Unley, it was one of his, his, his he had a particular fondness for the song. He used to collect different versions of it. Um, and this is it, known as it's titled The Heart's Delight, sung by, by Austin Flanagan. There was a lad lived in this town. He was a lad of a high renown. He had one daughter, a beauty bright. And the name he called her was his heart's delight. There did many a lord 
to court or came, but none of them could her favor gain. Till at length came a lord of a high degree, and above them all she fancied he. One night she was far bed bound, just stripped and ready to lay down. She heard the dead and the dead man sound, saying, Untie those bonds, love, they are fast found. Her father's deed was the poor she knew, her mother's mantle and safe yard too. Saying, Here's a token to your beauty bride, your father loves you to come tonight. She dressed herself in rich attire, she rode away with her arms not get me out of bed in the middle of the night to go anywhere i'm sorry <laughs> well look at, <laughs> just saying there's another verse sometimes at the end of that um uh some what the hell is it? it's like uh woe to woe to parents who might say still forbid young people from doing their will for once their love and their vows they give you can't untie them while they live or something like that mm. that is it that that this thing is just has to it's it's kind of I don't know, fated now or locked in. Either if one is dead, then they both need to need to die, basically, or something along those lines. Anyway. You all romantic, you. Well, yes. <laughs> um. So the heart's delight in that you hear, you know, she's travelling on, on on the horse. In some instances, uh, the rider will say he'll, he'll turn to his his partner and he'll say to her that, "Oh, my head is sore," mm. or she and she'll put this Holland handkerchief on it. That's what's another title of it often. Um, or there, uh, or then she kisses him and says, Mavita Thor, you know, kind of my darling love, you're as cold as clay. That there's these gradual kind of things that aren't quite right in, in the description of it until she comes to her father's hall and realizes, oh, this, this chap is totally dead and there's, there's ivy growing over his grave because he's, he's very dead. He's very dead. But yeah. the one um, I was reading about um, was Sputter and Goss, I guess, going to on when she tells him to go faster on the mm-hmm. horse. Kick the horse, yeah. Kick the horse, but then she realizes he doesn't have a leg to <laughs> kick. And so it's it's that conversation was um our previous director, Professor Rian Yogan and Anne O'Connor wrote a paper about this song mm. and this legend. 
and they're kind of breaking it down into every aspect of the couple and then the rendezvous Mm -hmm. and then the nature of the conversation that they have and when does the woman realize that something's amiss and then what happens which Mm. so just to actually look at this in a scholarly way is fascinating Mm. to look at the different aspects and how they differ between versions and between the kind of the ballad tradition and the oral tradition Mm -hmm. it's it's hugely interesting it is it is whether it's a happy ending or a um, a miserable ending, one. A miserable one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think we should uh, we should wrap up. I think all so. questions concerning the soul. We're testing everyone's patience it. now. We are. There are probably a few souls have expired over <laughs> the course of this podcast, but um, but yes, there is a a kind of a well a brief overview of conceptions of the soul and folk tradition. I think it's important that we bear in mind these souls of our departed forebears. Absolutely. And and um, that they enter our minds and we send them a spirit of good cheer and make offerings and give them tobacco and flowers and things like this and. Because we're going to need your own. And on our own. We're, we're going to need all the help. Please start praying for us now, folks. Good grief. Yeah, yeah, lighting candles. I shall, um, to finish, there is a piece here from, from The Bonnie Green Tree, uh, recorded by Tom Munley from John Riley, um, a traveller singer. And this is uh, this song, Here's a Duo Unto All True Lovers, it deals with, again, this, this idea of the, the, the dead lover returns. But who has to depart at, at cockrow in the morning, mm-hmm. um, because that's when that's kind of the other world kind of I suppose has to when its powers cease and, and the powers of day kind of, um, I suppose reign again. But um, here's a you want to Walter lovers, and with that, uh, well, we shall likewise bid you adieu. And I will give you your present. Thank you very kindly. Okay. Thanks for reminding me again. God. Well, disappointment is the lot of women, Johnny. Ah, that's fine. God. Thanks. Sorry, Claire. Goodbye. It's a happy anniversary. Yes. Thank you. You too. God. See you next month. Bye. <laughs> Here's a Jew and to all true lovers And to my true lover where she'll be This very night I meant to be water Though she is a many long mile away As the night was dark and ill dark is dungeon I've no delight, love, for to appear. Then I'll be guided, and out he'll stumble into the arms of you, my dear. Oh, when he came to his own love's cottage, he kneeled. Down gently on a stone Through a penny glass He had whispered slowly I said to love Are you all alone? Who's that, who's that At my bed or window Disturbing me for my long night's rest Oh, I said, lover, do not discover Open the door, love, and let me in I said, true lover, do not discover Besides, I'm wet, loving to the skin I'll she rose above her soft down pillow, opened the door and let her love in. 
where the boat caught hands and they kissed each other. And welcome nightly, it soon begin. They still kept hands and they abraged each other until the long night was at an end. Then, Willie, Willie, where is your flushes? Where is your flushes? You had years ago. Then, Molly Bonshaw, Colclair's changed them. The raging seas between me and you. They still kept hands on. They bridged each other and tell the cocks they begin to crow. And in shook hands and he cried and parted to the burning temples, love I have to go.